Hey, thanks for listening to Everyday Greatness. It's a nice little show brought to you by our major sponsor, ARA Group, an employee-owned company that provides essential services for your facility and infrastructure and is one of Australia's biggest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness isn't rocket science. We're just trying to make you feel proud again of simply being a good, solid human being by speaking to some real people who found that the strength they needed to deal with any challenge in their life had been inside them the whole time. The ARA Group is proud to stand alongside Everyday Greatness, and we all hope that you enjoy the show. Uh, this is exciting. The story of our next guest, former AFL Sydney Swan player Brandon Jack, is a, a story of modern bravery, if you will. Brandon was expected to be an elite sports star. His, his father, Gary, was an international rugby league player, and his brother, Kieran, captained the Sydney Swans to an AFL premiership so when Brandon was drafted to the Swans in 2013, most people just expected him to be a superstar in professional sports. But that wasn't the person that Brandon wanted to be. He felt he had more value to offer the world than just running around, getting a kick, and then getting blind drunk after the game. So in a meeting with Sydney Swans head coach, John Longmire, Brandon said that he'd like to leave the club as his heart wasn't in it. And they amicably parted ways and Brandon is now living the life he wants. So <laughs> that's pretty gutsy, I reckon. Pretty gutsy. So he's a he's played music in a band. He's a freelance journalist. He speaks to schools, especially helping young boys by telling them the importance of setting a good example and the need of men to pull their heads in. His biography, 28. That's two eight, just the numerals, two eight was just listed. you got to listen. This is fabulous. It was just listed in the top 20 sporting biographies in the world by GQ magazine. Like, if that's not a wow, nothing's a wow. That's a wow. So through his bravery, Brandon is setting an example for the rest of us and showing that you don't have to do what's expected of you. You've got to be the person that you want to be and just do it with passion. Be proud of the person you are anytime any day. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to Everyday Greatness, Brandon Jack. G'day, Brandon. G'day, Scott. How's it going? Oh, mate, what a story you've got. You, you, <laughs> hey, that's that's <laughs> totally the reverse of, of everybody else's dream. Everybody wants to go and play and you said, nah, <laughs> don't want to play. Don't want to. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you did kind of sum it up quite nicely just then and there's obviously a lot more to it. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a book in it. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, it's an interesting journey and um, football is very central to my life and I'm sure we'll talk about that a fair bit today. So I'm excited to see where reckon. things head today. Yeah. Absolutely. So we will get to your career at the Sydney Swans in a second, but tell me about the club where it all started, Brandon, the Pennant Hills Demons. What, what's your what's your memories of the Demons? Hey, so my connection to Pano started with, uh, with Kieran playing, obviously, so... Before I, I ever thought to, to play Aussie Rules, I was a staunch rugby league fan growing up. You know, I, I would have, uh, I rocked up to Kieran's games at Earn Holmes Oval in my Pano Stags kit from the from the morning. Um, and that was my weekend, I guess. I kind of play my footy in the morning and then mum and dad would, would then kind of rush us off to the next kid's game. Um, and I first saw Aussie Rules at Earn Holmes watching Kieran play for Pano. And then probably 10 years after that, um, I then transitioned to play Aussie Rules myself. Wasn't wasn't having a good goal at rugby league, was was too small, was getting bashed around. And to be honest, wouldn't have made it, wouldn't have made the top league. And that's what I was playing for. Um, 
And then, yeah, I started playing. Originally, I played two years of junior footy with Westbrook, um, which is a kind of feeder club for Penno in a way. Uh, but then when I got to Penno as a 16-year-old, that's when things really ramped up. Um, and I played two years of, you know, senior footy against other men. Um, well, against men. I wasn't a man then. I was a 16-year-old boy who weighed 50 kilos. Um, <laughs> yeah, but kind of realized that, you know, I did have a bit of potential um, and was nurtured by some, some good people at that club. And I, it's a footy club that I do have a lot of respect for today and admire the way they go about things. Yeah, good on you. Now tell me about your book. Your book is called 2-8. It's described as a, a memoir of football addiction, art, masculinity and and love. And it paints yeah, a picture on. of a, a young fellow whose professional sporting career wasn't spent beneath the big bright lights but on the fringe of the field fighting for a spot on the team. That's really good. And then the destructive yeah. forces such as experience can bring about. So what sort of destructive forces did, well, it, did I mean, it bring about for you? The book itself, so 28, it's funny, I was looking through, I'd, I'd gotten a, a deal to write a memoir or a series of essays um, originally and that had nothing to do with football. And I remember I read over it the other day, the original submission, and I, in that transcript, I wrote briefly about football. I think I did a bunch of dot points about my footy career. Um, so I didn't want to talk about it because I was still very much angry with how things went and kind of disappointed in myself in a way still. Um, and I, I had written that I only played 27 games. Like I didn't even know how many games I'd played. That's how that's how far from my mind it was. Um, you know, so then obviously I had to look at myself on Wikipedia to find out I did play 28 games. Um <laughs> And the, you know, the, the story there is that that's actually the, that's the realistic kind of expectation you should have going into an AFL system. That's the average career length almost. Very few people play 300 games, yet those are the ones we do get the books from often, isn't it? It's the grand final heroes, and the Brownlow medalists, and the people who have done everything. Absolutely. Uh, but none of that covered my experience and the probably 90% of AFL careers as you come in, you are on a list of, 40-odd players and, you know, only 22 get picked each week and you're kind of hiding from the coach in the gym because you don't want to get a tap on the shoulder saying you're not playing or you're the emergency. And the emergency role involving getting ready for a game, doing the inside warm-up and then watching everyone else run out and you have to take your ankle tape off and sit in the change room and go like far out. I was really excited to play just then or I was getting myself up to play and I didn't. And that's that's the part of professional footy that we don't really see. And uh, people, when I tell them those stories, they're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realise you had to wait around for a text message on a, on a Wednesday afternoon saying what time your meeting was. And that whole text message decides your your mental capacity, your mental kind of head state for the next week because you're either a seniors player or a resis player. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you take that base and you can understand what it's like to – to not be in the team. And then I think everyone experiences that in a way in their life and the destructive stuff comes off the back of that. Absolutely. So were you ever taken seriously? If you if you voiced your concerns about destructive forces or whatever, did you feel like you were just stuck on that uh, treadmill to be to becoming a sports person? Was, was that a, a thing that well, you I, had to be? No, I, I mean, I didn't voice my concerns at all. I just kind of, it was the... You know, the way we handled things, the guys in my position, um, we became a close-knit group and we just drunk. And that was our, that was our way of literally of, of handling, you know, we're not in the team, so we're just going to drink piss with each other. And you kind of walk into the club on Monday and, and I don't think anyone's like, oh, you guys should maybe talk to someone about this, which would have been a, a probably healthier thing to do. 
it's kind of just like, oh, they're the piss heads of the club. You know, those boys will always be out if you want to have a beer. And that's how, <laughs> that's how it was handled. Yeah. So when you did get drafted by the Sydney Swans, was how exhilarating was that? Or was it a relief uh, that you that you well, taken the next it's step? A, it's a funny story because I, I, I remember the draft night was on TV and I didn't get picked up. And I kind of heard a few rumours, had a few emails that maybe I, I might get picked up by the Swans in the, in the national draft. It didn't happen. And I kind of wasn't too upset about it because at that point in my life, I was, you know, I, I could have happily walked away from footy at that point and been like, you know, I wasn't good enough to get picked. It's taken out of my hands. Saved me from having to say to mum and dad, you know, that I, I didn't want to play anymore because I just didn't get picked. Um, but a few days later after that, uh, I got a phone call from someone at the Swans. I, was, I think I was driving home from a mate's house. Um, and they said, oh, you've been invited to come and train with the club for a month. And if you do all right, then then you might get a rookie contract. So I, um, you know, I, I moved out of home the next day, I think, and moved in with Kieran. And then for a month, trained with the senior team. So I was just just fresh out of high school, like didn't go on schoolies. I was I was training when I should have been at schoolies or could have been at schoolies. Wow. Um, yeah. So like it was literally like just after I finished exams. Um, so I moved out of home and then was training. You know, the professional training schedule for a month. Trained pretty well. Um, and then yeah, got a got a contract, got a rookie deal at the end of that, and was pr- I remember being pretty excited when I got that rookie deal. You know, it was it was I I, I knew I was a, a a good footy player, and I always had this expectation that I would play professional footy, and I was very proud when it happened. Um, but you know, kind of everything that happened after that is, is a bit is a bit of a different reality. Yeah, yeah. But you you're at the Swans in a, a what we term a golden era. Give us some. Oh, Magic yeah. players there. Did any any of the senior players pull you aside and give you some words of wisdom or anything? Um, I mean, yes, yeah, so I was there 2013 to 2017, and I think so they just won the 2012 grand final. And I was in the sheds after that grand final. You know, I was, I was awestruck by those guys. Um, and I think they lost the 2014 and 2016 grand finals and were, like, consistently top of the table. So it was a bloody good time, like, really good team to be a part of. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I played with the likes of – Adam Goods and Lance Franklin and Jared McBay, Joey Kennedy, like some some really big names. And it's kind of hard to pinpoint, you know, specific advice. I remember Goodsy. Goodsy was just a, a someone who was an incredible role model. I mean, he and he had a way of talking to everyone at the club without without being too hard on them or or really empathetically. He spoke, and I remember a few leaders kind of would just hit you between the eyes and walk off. <laughs> but, but, but Goodsy had a way of you know putting his arm around you and I mean, he didn't have to, he, he was a superstar when I got there. He could have just ignored me and gone, mate, when you played a hundred games and come talk to me. <laughs> but as a, as a young player, you know, he, he made you feel welcome and he put himself on your level. And that's the kind of leadership stuff that stuck with me. That's major, isn't it? That is major. Yeah. yeah. That says so much more about just reading the back of a paper. Hey, did yeah. you ever talk to any of your teammates about feeling like maybe you wanted to do something else with your life? Uh, I originally hid it from them. So when I was like, I think it was my fourth year at the club, I started getting, so I played for five years. My fourth year at the club, I started getting really into music and it was something that I would enjoyed doing as a kid and as a teenager. But I, when footy got really serious, I just kind of put it on the back burner because I wanted to devote all my time to footy. Um, but I, I kind of hid it from them, yeah. I mean, I, I'd write stuff in a notebook that I'd carry around with me, but I, I wouldn't show it to, like I wouldn't want to be seen with that notebook and, I'd play guitar in my room alone and sing on my own and, and, you know, 
didn't really want to share that with them. And then funny when I kind of knew I was done at the club in my last year, I then kind of started to play it up a bit more and be like, Hey, I, I don't belong here. Like I'm going to do this as a, as a kind of like, yeah, as a kind of like, it was a bit of an easy out to be like, you know, I don't care about this stuff. Like I'm going to do music stuff. But, yeah. You know, yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I mean, there wasn't probably many guys to talk to about it because it wasn't a common interest, but you know, I, I ebbed and flowed between how much I shared and how much I hid. <laughs> well, I'm going to, you're terrific. You're terrific to talk to. I'm going to give Barnaby a turn because Barnaby's got a whole bunch of questions <laughs> being a, a fellow demon. So here comes Barnaby for you. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Brandon. That's all right. Thanks, Scotty. And hello, Brandon. Go you D's. <laughs> G'day, Barnaby. <laughs> so you're also a type 1 diabetic. How difficult yes. was it managing that while you're swimming in uncertainty while you're playing footy at the Swans? Yeah. Um, so I was diagnosed type 1 diabetes when I was 13 and, like, there was no family history or anything that I was aware of. So it was a very strange thing. Like, you know, you just you have all those symptoms of, of going to the bathroom, like, six, seven times a night and drinking water all the time and I'd lost a bit of weight and I was already stick thin. Um and then the diagnosis comes and then you're giving five injections a day from then on. And it's just, you know, you're checking your blood sugar before every meal. Um, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I'm not lucky because I work hard at it. Like I've had a, a good kind of management of my blood sugar levels throughout my life. Like I, I want my body to be in good shape in a way. So I make sure I get like a certain three month reading at the doctors, but at the same time, like there's times when I've definitely, on the field, for example, I've had a really, really high blood sugar, but I don't like. I, I should probably say I shouldn't play, but I'd never do that. Yeah, because you know when you're out in the in the like you see, not to compare it too closely to the concussion side of things, but you'd see blokes that concussed. They don't want to come off. They want to stay on the field, and and that mindset kind of like I would never come off with a high blood sugar, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give that advice to kids coming through. I'd say no, make sure your sugar's all right. But in the moment when I was in that mindset, it was like playing comes first, diabetes comes second, yeah. which, you know, long-term implications of that aren't great. Um, but as a, as a young bloke who just wanted to, to kind of play footy at that point, um, yeah, there were moments when it, when it wasn't great. Yeah. So when you were at the Swans, AFL talent identification programs were booming with things like the Swans Academy. Mm. How much mm. pressure did that add to you? as a young kid, when there was so much quality competition around you, all vying for exactly the same thing? Yes, I came through, I kind of saw it transition to the academy. So they had a scholarship program and I really wanted to get a scholarship because it meant you got like $20,000 or something and got to train with the club and I just wanted the money. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I wasn't good and I just missed out on that. So they transitioned that program to the academy, which at the start was only a group of about 20 of us or 25 of us. And I mean, now there's like 400 kids in the academy of the different age groups. Um, and we had, I think we had Paul Ruse was our first coach and all the stories about Ruse and, and his kind of ruthlessness on uh, on senior players. I mean, he, he did that with us as kids as well. I remember getting uh, a one-on-one session with Ruse as a 16 year old and he, he ranked me two out of five for skills, two out of five for fitness and two out of five for commitment. And the commitment was because I was late to training because I had schoolwork. So I was always a bit filthy reason for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, uh, I, I, in a way I got used to, you know, that led me into the professionalism of the sport and I was well prepared going in for the honesty that was required. Um, in terms of pressure, you know, I, I think I'm a, a bit of a rare case because, 
growing up with a dad who was, you know, one of the best footy players in the world and obviously Kieran's success, like I always felt a level of pressure that that pressure to me doesn't feel like anything because it's always there. Um, and it's my own kind of expectations of myself in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's what it became. I, I struggle, you know, I've, I've done interviews before and, and when I was playing and I said, no, I, I never felt pressure to follow my dad's footsteps. That's because it was so internal for me. That was just my normal. Yeah. So you got pretty intense with yourself while you had all this pressure on you trying to make it as a professional athlete. You wrote one particular diary entry that you've shared in your time at the Swans where you said, I'm the most relentless player on the field. I'm never beaten one-on-one. Were you just trying to convince yourself of something that in your heart of hearts you didn't believe was true? Uh, In a way, yeah. I think that was a big thing at the Swans was the idea of a trademark. And whenever to... Whenever the Bloods culture comes up in that 05 grand final and, you know, they, they had this kind of leading team session where you look at the culture of the club and in individuals and that was still there when I was there, the idea of a trademark is so I am the most relentless player on the field or I am the best one-on-one defender in the comp and every single player in our group had one of those for themselves and that was kind of, you know, logically it doesn't make sense because we can't all be the best one-on-one defender in the comp, can we? <laughs> we can't all be the best two-way running midfield. Like there's only one of them. So it's obviously a sense of conning yourself into this thought process. And I know I, I would never say that when I was there because to go against it would be heinous. Um, but yeah, so I, I definitely, I, I did that all the time. I, I My diary entries from that time are, are pretty confronting because it's like, it's a form of like motivation, but there's a lot of like angst there and self-loathing at times. And Stuff about, you know, I, I hate my coach. Like, I effing hate John Longmire because he didn't pick me. And that's my head coach. And I'm in a position where I'm like, he's not picking me, so I hate him. And then the next week, he might pick me. So I've got to play for a bloke <laughs> who I've just said I hate. Like, that's the sort of little loops I used to twist myself into. That sounds intense. You sound like you're carrying a really heavy load on your shoulders. How did that pressure oh, that you felt manifest itself? Did you party hard after games, break down yeah, and cry, yeah, yeah. speak to friends, I mean, get all, advice? I mean, uh, all of those but the last two. No, none of the, none of the healthy coping mechanisms. <laughs> we wouldn't do any of that. Um, I guess my mechanisms were, A, to, to really burn myself into the ground with my training. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that if you asked anyone who was at the Swans when I was there, that they'd, I think they'd point to me as the, like, most consistently – hardworking trainer and, and I kind of did that because that's what Kieran was known as and I wanted to be what Kieran was so when I heard he was the hardest trainer I was like well I'm going to be the hardest trainer um, and I would just you know I'd do the extras I never missed a session I would continually top our like pre-season long GPS data and I would just burn myself and burn myself to get to the to try and become the best I could be um, but also because I was so scared of failure that I thought if I, just, if I just keep working, I won't fail. That was my mindset. Um, and then off the field, you know, the, the drinking side of things was really did ramp up um, as my career started to kind of go off the rails a bit and I wasn't getting picked anymore. My, you know, the time spent at, at nightclubs um, and the amount of alcohol I consumed definitely picked up. Um, and, you know, that's a, it's a common story. It's, it's, a, it's a way to numb yourself. It's a way to feel a bit of happiness, but it's not, not, doesn't like last it just fades away and you wake up the next morning feeling worse yeah 
Do you regret spending so many years of your life pursuing a career in professional sport? Do you wish you'd gone straight from school into the arts? Um, this is a really good question. I do think about this a fair bit. I mean, I, I've, I've never, for example, I've never travelled to Europe or done like European summer and that's a really, you know, first world problem. But <laughs> if, I hadn't, if, I, if I hadn't have played footy, then I might have spent a year abroad and I might have learned a few things about myself, uh, things that I'm like just starting to discover now post-footy. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you can't change that. And I'm, I've learned a lot from my time in footy, um, the kind of work – uh, work ethic I have, uh, the attitude I have towards, um, you know, being able to achieve things if I put my mind to it, instilled in me through sports. Um, you know, I, I've I got a book out of it. I'm I'm going to continue to write more about football because it's it's a part of the world that I know so so intimately that there's not a whole heap of good books written about footy, especially not like fiction, for example. And I and I know footy so well that I think I could really do some work in that space. So. You know, I view the silver linings of it. It's given me a lot to, lot to write about. Um, you know, I essentially did research my whole life on on being a professional footy player. Very mature response. Now, Brandon, I passionately hate footy puns, but I'm going to drag <laughs> myself and bring Scott Gibbons back on and take you through the last quarter, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> back with you, Brandon. So yeah. your, your life now, you've got your fingers in, in a lot of pies in, in the arts world these days. So you're an mm-hmm. author, a, a band member, a journalist. Are, are you now living the life that you, you've dreamed about? Uh, it's funny because I, I wouldn't have dreamt of this life growing up because, A, I didn't know you could live it. Like literally what I knew was like you're just going to play footy. So it's it's not like I was a 15-year-old kid being like, oh, one day I'll be a writer. But I didn't know any writers. But now, you know, I, I feel like I've, I'm in control of what I do with my life and I'm, I'm choosing the path to follow and, you know, it's still learning every day. Like I haven't, I haven't done anything with music for like six months because I just don't feel like it. So I'm writing other stuff. Um, and that's the fortunate position I'm in where I can, you know, follow these, follow these kind of interests as they come. Um, and that to me is a, you know, it's a, a real luxury in life where I'm able to spend time honing my, honing my craft in a lot of different ways. Yeah, what, what's your favourite craft now? What? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm working on um, I'm working on a novel. So I've been, uh, you know, I, I've never really written fiction before, um, and my high school English teachers would tell you that my fiction writing was horrendous back then. <laughs> and I uh, totally like I, I I bombed out in creative writing all the time. But you know now because I've started you know the past five six years I I read like two books a week and I, I've I've started to dedicate myself to that craft and I'm, and I'm learning how to write fiction and I'm learning how to piece together a novel. And that to me, like learning how to do anything new is such an enjoyable process for me. So at the moment it, it's writing a novel, but you know, I think, I think I tend to do things and then move on and find new things to do. So who knows what will come after that? Yeah. And are you self-taught doing that or have you found yourself a mentor? Or? Yeah. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I've got you know, off the back of 28, I've made some, good connections in the literary world in Australia. And I've got a few friends who have also written books and, you know, we, we kind of talk to each other about it and the process and that, that side of thing fascinates me learning about other people's process. But I do have a mindset of if I learn too much from somebody else then I'm just going to imitate what they do. So I like the idea of getting my hands dirty and, and doing it my way and, and that being something new in a way. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So when you left the Swans at, 
what were you, the age of 23, I guess? You, you played, yeah. You played 28 games, but your book's been listed with GQ magazine as one of the 20 best sport books to read right now. So why do you think your books resonated so strongly with, with the world? Because <laughs> um, most of them, as you were saying, most books are written by people who have done 150 games or 300 yeah. games or Brownlows or premierships or whatever. So what, what was the, the reason you think yours resonated? I mean, that's that's one side of it, I think, for sure. We, I'm so surprised we haven't got – I mean, I don't think there's been a book like that about somebody who didn't make it um, because I can see why publishers wouldn't think that would sell, um, <laughs> you know, because we, we, we glorify success so much. And I, I want to hear about I, – I love success in sports. I love reading about, like, Wayne Gretzky or hearing about Michael Jordan. Like, that's just the date. But um, the other side of it is quite relatable, and that's the thing I've been – Hearing from a lot of people who who didn't play football who relate to the messages of it, um, but as well, like not to not to toot my own horn, but I, I worked this book bloody hard and spent two years every day working on it. It was my priority for two years, and I think you know, having been to a few writers' festivals and been around the community, I understand that sports memoirs, the, the ghost written kind, are kind of a almost like a laughing stock, like at the end of a punchline in that world, because it's, it's an athlete who just works with a ghost writer and they just kind of do this superficially kind of thing. And I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule. Um, I have read some good ghost written sports books, but I was the writer and the story hand in hand. And I was like manically writing my thoughts down and thinking about this all the time. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a, a, a level of rawness right. there as a result. You know, I, I'm not trying to get in the head of somebody else. I'm in my head all the time. Yeah. And the amount of rewriting and evolution of thought that happened, like if I worked with a ghostwriter, I would have driven them freaking mad. So I would have called them up. <laughs> I would have called them up every 10 minutes and be like, no, 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 we're going to change this. That's, that's, that's not how I feel anymore. Um, so I guess, you know, being the, the writer in the story allowed me to do that. Yeah. So what was being a, a pro athlete all that it was cracked up to be? Uh, oh, I think no. Um, and that's just, that's a real blunt answer because I didn't, you know, everything I thought I'd have in my childhood, um, you know, the, the getting carried off the ground after 200 games or winning a grand final or, or, you know, having a medal around my neck. Like I, I never got near that. Um, and those are the parts that I was so intently focused on, but the other parts of professional sport, you know, I, you know, I, I made some really good mates through it. Um, and I, I've, I've learned a lot about myself as a person as a result and have acquired skills from it. So the reality of the experience is is great in a, way, in a lot of ways, but the expectation is kind of really distorted. Um, and I guess coming out the other side of that, I can see it and try and try and tell that to people, but I don't want to, I don't want to, take the shine off, but I still want people to think that it can be really awesome. And that's a delicate balance because you don't want to go up to a 15-year-old kid and be like, it sucks. <laughs> like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go up to a kid and say, it can be awful because you want them to still have, like, the wide eyes about it in a way. So yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a delicate kind of thing to, to get across to people. Oh, that's nice that you're not sour on the game. That's just terrific. <laughs> so do I you was think- for a while. I was. <laughs> so, and that's why I'm glad that. And the book didn't come out one year after playing. It was it was four years later. Yeah. Um, would have been a bit different then. 
Yeah, second version. <laughs> so do you think all the, the anxiety and the pressure and your struggle to find your identity was, was worth it now that you're the man that you want to be or are you, uh, are you being well, forced God, to be somebody still, you're not? No, I'm still figuring I'm still figuring out who I am. <laughs> I mean, oh, I don't think that's the thing. To, to convince myself that I have figured it out is a lie and that would be misleading to everyone out there. Um, I guess I'm just more accepting of that and more open that tomorrow I might wake up wanting to be something different and that's okay. Um, you know, the idea of just setting in stone expectations is quite a dangerous thing to do. Um, and I think that's what people find relatable. And, and the fact that I, I got a lot of feedback from the book about people saying like, this doesn't feel like an ending in a way. It doesn't feel like you've just resolved anything too, too strongly. And, and that's nice because I haven't. And that leaves an opening for, Book two, I don't know what you call it. Uh, Twenty nine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the book twenty eight two eight, just the numerals two eight. Where where do folks get your book? Uh, I mean, you can get it any any. I mean, Booktopia is a place you can get it, but I I would recommend people go to their local bookstores um, because it's really important that we do support our local bookstores at the moment. And if they don't have it in then I'm sure they can order it in. You're a good um, man. You're a good man saying yeah. that. That's, that's lovely of you. Yes, because, you know, the big online online will have it, but preference is go to your local. Yeah, and build a relationship with your bookshop. Yeah, that could be Exactly you. right. I've got to say thank you to you. You're, you're very inspiring in so many different ways because it's not all just <laughs> – Puff up with you're you're prepared to tell it both both sides of the story, which is terrific. <laughs> Thanks, God. Thank you. So what I'll do is I'll I'll thank you now, Brandon, for for yep. joining us, and I've got to thank everyone who's listening for listening, and to thank yep. the ARA Group for being our mm-hmm. major sponsor for the fifth year in a row, and a huge huge thanks to Look Studio Australia because they've been recording this podcast for us, and I hope when you put down your device later on and you lift your head up and you put your shoulders back. And you walk down the street feeling proud to be an everyday Joe or Joey and Baker Donuts. That's what we want you to do is puff your chest out and, and feel real good about yourself. Now, you can listen to Everyday Greatness next week and Barnaby and I will be talking to Juliet O'Brien. She's a digital and data journalist and author and the daughter of Gail and the late Professor Chris O'Brien, who was famous for so many things, but you may have heard of the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in Sydney, which is just an incredible one-stop shop, if you will, for for cancer care. So we'll we'll talk to Julieta Bryan about the wisdom passed down from her parents, which helped her deal with losing her father and her brother far too early. But we hope you can join us for that. And in the meantime, we want you to find out more about the show. So to do that, you just go to the website, which is everydaygreatness.com.au. That's everydaygreatness.com.au. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or LinkedIn, but we've got to thank Brandon because you were just you're, you're just terrific to talk to. I, I, I reckon we could we could do series two again, <laughs> <laughs> series six. Well, when you do your next book, we want you back. Awesome! No, yeah, I'd love to come back, guys. Thanks, it was a really awesome chat. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks, Barnaby.